remind people of that. So if this is your dream, if this is your ambition, don't don't give up the first time if it doesn't work out for you. Uh, give it another try. Keep at it uh, and, and be persistent because uh, that persistence is itself a, a great call. Good afternoon and welcome to Jobs with Jody, a podcast produced by NPCA's Global Reentry Program. I'm your host, Jody Hammer, and today we are going to be talking once again to persons from the State Department, and, and we're going to be talking about the area of foreign, as foreign service officers and such, uh, because really so many RPCDs want to work for the State Department, right? It's one of the most common aspirations. So many people, you know, indicate, I want to be a foreign service officer. I want to be you know, I want to work with foreign service and travel and, and go abroad again and, you know, all of that. So today, once again, we're going to be talking with, we're going to talk with some State Department officials who definitely have great insight on this. And I'll be introducing them in, in just a moment here. But my first guest for today is George Sibley, who is a very seasoned diplomat with the U.S. State Department. He's done tours in Nepal, Madagascar, Burma, just many, many different areas and, and has had quite an exciting career that we'll hear more about. He's currently the State Department diplomat in residence for the Mid-Atlantic region, and he'll be talking to you a little more about what that entails and what that really means and what he gets to do for his job. And you know, as kind of really an information person and, and trying to really help promote foreign, foreign service among, among U.S. citizens. And then my second guest is Jason Toulouk. And Jason is an RPCV who served in Ukraine from 2006 to 2008. And he's been with the State Department for over 12 years, currently working as the deputy director of the Office of Talent Acquisition. So he's definitely one of the best people to talk about careers in foreign service and how to get into the foreign service because he works in that very area. So he'll be able to speak to the hiring process and, and qualifications. And of course, as to why RPCVs make the best foreign service officers, which is the title of our podcast today. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jody. Thank you, Jody, for having us today. Great. Well, I'm just I'm I'm really happy to have both of you here. And Jason, before we even begin, I just want to take a moment and just you know address the fact that you know you served in Ukraine, and I'm sure that you know having served in Ukraine with everything going on right now, I'm sure your heart is heavy as as are the hearts of so many. But you know, I just really hope that your Peace Corps family and your community are okay, and and really just you know, sending thoughts to you in that regard. I hope that they are. I hope you've been able to be in touch and maybe, you know, find out how things are going, but it's very hopeful that things will end soon as well. Yeah, it's definitely a heartbreaking situation. You know, I'm, I'm seeing constant and we all see it on the news, you know, places that I personally gave presentations at or walked and seeing these blown up. Um, it's terrifying. It's interesting because, you know, as time goes on, you don't keep as close contact anymore with colleagues that you had or friends that you had in those countries. But this brought it all back home again. And I have been in constant contact with a lot of former colleagues who I haven't talked to in years, finding out about their safety, if they've evacuated and whatnot. And um, it, it, it brought me back to my service, and which is part of the third goal of Peace Corps too. And it's about talking about this. I'm sharing stories with 
people about my Peace Corps service and about Ukraine. And I see myself teaching and talking about the wonderful culture of this country and the people of this amazing country. So thank you. Our thoughts are definitely with everybody today. I have heard just from so many of my, you know, RPCVs who served in in Ukraine and just hearing them, you know, talk about their families and, and people communicating with them. And it's just, it's, it's extremely, extremely scary and, and just frightening. And I just, I really hope that it comes to an end shortly. So um, thank you for, for sharing that, uh, Jason. So let's go ahead and begin. I want to begin by allowing each of you to introduce yourselves briefly. Jason, can, can you perhaps begin by, by giving us a little more of a description of your, you know, your career path and, and maybe including how your own Peace Corps service has impacted, you know, your own trajectory? Absolutely. Uh, well, my career path is dynamic, is the best term, I think, to utilize. I'm from the northern suburbs of Chicago, uh, where I was born and raised. And being from that area, the State Department is not something that is really talked about. You know, it's not really known. You see it on the news, you know, who the, uh, you know, you know who the Secretary of State is. And, but it's such a far away realm. And that's not anything that I ever envisioned myself working. As a matter of fact, my undergraduate degree is in theater lighting. I was a roadie. Wow. Initially coming out of college where I did major tours for concerts, uh, Metallica, Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys. So these are some wow. of the ones that my experience started. I was a crew chief for those. Uh, so you can see how it's, it's not quite the typical path. Um, went into business for quite a while, uh, but then decided to refine myself and I went and I received my master's in education. I was a high school teacher, a university teacher. And it's during that time where I started looking at Peace Corps. Um, I was a little bit older than most Peace Corps volunteers when I entered. Um, and I was teaching at a university in Odessa, Ukraine. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where the State Department first came into mind. Because I, ne- like I said, I never knew about it. But many different Peace Corps volunteers that were out there were already thinking about this, looking at the Foreign Service exam. Um, I started working very closely with the embassy in Kiev and speaking with the ambassador out there. Um, and that's where I started finding out more and more about what the State Department is. And I started thinking about the Foreign Service myself. Uh-huh. But I, um, but I, I applied for a position while I was there, which was a management training position. Uh, that no longer exists from the civil service. Uh, this was near the end of my Peace Corps tenure because I said, yeah, you know what? I think I do want to go into the State Department. I was looking at actually getting my PhD after Peace Corps and I decided not to. Um, but also at the, simultaneously, I was also uh, going through the foreign service process and doing the foreign service exam. I received an offer from the civil service. Um, I took that position in the management training program, which was a trajectory to um, management eventually you start off pretty low and you work your way up um i did go through the foreign service process myself but ultimately declined because i met my wife i had a certain family and i decided that the civil service was the right path for me at that time so what i took out of this and where it came from is the many paths that you have and the many individuals that you meet it's atypical working at the state department the uh not everybody comes with a political science background or an international relations background. It's from all realms of life. And uh, that's something that I really, really hold dear to me about my background and being able to bring the diversity also to the State Department. So it's a brief overview of where I came from. That's great. Thank you so much. And and I, I love hearing that, you know, you were 
where you thought you would be is not necessarily where you ended up, right? Going because of having met someone, having done whatever. But, you know, so many people maybe envision foreign service. That's what I want to do. And then, you know, they things change or they get in and they really love the, the civil service. And that's something that, you know, we can maybe touch on a little bit later as well. You know, civil service positions and, and you know, in, in State Department, maybe we can talk a little more about that as well. But thank you for sharing about your own your own career path there. George, can you do the same? Maybe share a bit about, you know, your own impressive career and, and you know, where foreign service has, you know, taken you as a, as a diplomat and very, very gladly, Jody. You know, I, I sort of will echo a little bit of Jason in the sense that, you know, there's a tremendous variety of the background of people coming into the foreign service or the civil service for that matter. And so my educational background, I had a double major in biology and religious philosophy. <laughs> right. So, you know, there's no political science, no international relations, no, no knock on those degrees, but it just gives you the idea that you're, you can succeed in this career with a great variety of different backgrounds. And in fact, after I graduated, I went to sea. I was a merchant mariner for 11 years. And in some ways, I had the opposite situation from Jason because I got married and my wife said, you know, having you off at sea for eight months out of the year, eh, that's, that's not working so well. So I had to think, well, what could I do um, that still entailed traveling the world, but with my family, bringing my family with me? Right. So um, at that time, I grew up in Mexico and my mother knew a guy who had uh, been a diplomat in Mexico, a U.S. diplomat, and had then been the person who designed the Foreign Service exam. Oh, wow. And he had already retired at that point, but she said, you should go talk to Fred. Um, (laughs) And so I'm going to tell you a little uh, anecdote and and, uh, we'll see where, where the title of this podcast comes from. Right. So I I reached out to Fred Saxtetter. He was in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was in D.C. and said, you know, can I come out and talk to you about this foreign service thing? He said, sure, delighted to. So I drove out there and uh, he served me tea and cookies and we talked for a while and he explained about the exam and the process. And it was very interesting. Uh, And then uh, I thanked him and, and left. And on the porch, as I was leaving, he said, by the way, you you aren't a former Peace Corps volunteer, are you? And I said, no, Mr. Saxtetter, no, I'm afraid uh, I I didn't do that. And he said, that's too bad because the best foreign service officers are former Peace Corps volunteers. That's what he said to me, quote, word for word. And I've carried that with me uh, all throughout my career. I did manage to get into the foreign service and traveled the world over. A number of the countries where I was posted had a Peace Corps program. I was always uh, uh, connected with it and with the volunteers because I so respected what they did. Yeah. And uh, and I've, I've certainly, there's nothing in my experience from meeting Saxtetter until today that leads me to doubt what he said. I think he's absolutely right that uh, our PCVs do make the best Foreign Service officers. And I certainly encourage uh, all those of you who may be listening to really give it a serious thought. Let me echo that a little bit with what George is saying with it, too, because, you know, it's amazing how many people you find at the State Department that are our PCBs. Um, You know, and it's it's astounding to me always, you know, you you just go into a meeting and you find out you have a background. Um, You know, this just happened yesterday in a meeting uh, where you have something in common. And it's due to the experiences that you have overseas, the the, uh, interactions that you have with, you know, the country um, and being able to have that, you know, the best 
I, I you know, our, our employees are excellent, you know, all over, but you do really find that the RPCBs have this, it seems like a leg up almost, um, the experiences that are there that really allows them to thrive in this environment. That's, those are such good points that really both of you are, are making, and I could not concur more in all of my years working with Return Peace Corps volunteers and doing, you know, kind of career coaching and helping them move on to what's next, you know, helping them to understand what amazing skills they bring, you know, that flexibility, that, you know, resourcefulness, those kinds of, of talents and skills are so utilized, so well utilized and needed in, in State Department type of, of careers. And, and George, I do want to say to you, you know, even though you haven't been an RPCV, you're not an RPCV, you are definitely clearly a member of the Peace Corps family and have interacted with many and mentored and just in all of your experience. And so I would say maybe once you retire, maybe you need to go to Peace Corps in your retirement so that you can add that to your, you know, to your array and you can kind of check that box. <laughs> Put it on my bucket list, right, Jody? Okay, you do that. You do that. So, George, can, can you tell us a little bit, um, our listeners, a little bit more about what do you do specifically in your current position as, you know, a diplomat in residence? That's great. I'm delighted to do that. First of all, you should understand that we have diplomats and residents scattered around the country. And okay. each diplomat and residence has a region. So there are actually 16 of us. And so for any of your listeners, you can go online on our website, careers.state.gov, and look up diplomats and residents and find out who is the diplomat and residence in the region where you live. And you can contact that person if you have any questions about a career in the foreign service or a career in the civil service, uh, or even uh, non-career, limited non-career appointments. So we have something called Consular Fellows Program. I think we may talk about mm. that a little later. That's, Absolutely. Uh, that's a limited assignment. It's not a career assignment, but it's for people who have language abilities in uh, Spanish or Portuguese or Mandarin Chinese or Arabic that we need and that many Peace Corps volunteers who served in countries where those languages are spoken have developed those skills. So for all of those uh, possibilities, even fellowships and internships, right, for students, our diplomats and residents are prepared to give you information and to help you so that you can be successful in trying to pursue those opportunities. So I have uh, the Mid-Atlantic, which is to say all of Virginia, all of North Carolina, and all of South Carolina, that's my, my region. And uh, I communicate all the time, both in large events like career fairs and then in small events in the sense I'll have uh, office hours where I'll be meeting with people sometimes one-on-one -on -one to talk about their aspirations and their dreams and to try to help them uh, find a way to, to make them come true. And I will say, uh, I sometimes you say I'm, I'm honorary Peace Corps. I really believe that because sometimes I think Peace Corps should be paying me to recruit for them as well. Uh, because one of the things that it turns out for students just getting out of undergraduate, it's pretty hard to cross the threshold to get into the foreign service. Occasionally some do. It's not impossible, but you lack that experience and that background and so that life experience, if you like, uh, that allows you to uh, go through the very rigorous selection process. And so when people say, well, OK, so I can't if I'm not likely to get in right away, what should I do? And my answer starts first with saying you should do something that that addresses your passions, that you will love. 
don't do something that you'll hate just because you think it might get you into the foreign service. That's foolish. But I say, but if you're thinking about some ideas, the very first one I mentioned is Peace Corps, because I say that gives you a chance to show that you can go to another country, live in another country, a culture, uh, very likely learn another language and and do so under some sometimes difficult conditions. Right. The the hardest job you'll ever love. Right. And that was so, my favorite. That was my favorite you know, saying. Peace Corps, the toughest job you'll ever love. No, exactly. And so I do always mention that as a, as a great opportunity for people who are thinking about laying the groundwork. And of course, the people on, on, who are listening to your podcast have already done that. So they're already a full step ahead of everybody else. Yeah, no, that is, that is great. Thank you so much. That's, that's super helpful. And I'm glad that there are people like you out there and that that's an actual position that, you know, State Department invests in to be able to help promote it because, you know, having people who have your energy and your passion for it, right, and, and you know, to talk about it makes a, a huge difference rather than just reading a, reading online, you know, a website. This is what you need to do. This is how you apply. There's, you know, all of that. So I, I think, you know, and, and, and being able to talk to a person about how can I become more competitive? What can I do? Um, that is just great. I don't know how long have they had diplomats in residence? Has it been something that's been around for a long time? I don't know, Jason, if you know that more or George, if you know, it's been around for a long time. I know it's been around for quite a while. I don't know the exact mm-hmm. length and longevity of it, but it's been around for quite a while and it's evolved in time. The diplomats and residents, you know, they are resources that individuals should go to. That's why they're there. That's why we have 16 of them all representing a region. Um, yeah. And, and it's 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 not just to be at a college and recruiting for a university. This is about recruiting for the whole foreign service and representing the region. Yeah. And it's, that's what I mean by it's changed. It used to be the mentality that it was like, oh, we're going to be working over at a university and being able to. That's not what it is. It's about being hosted by these universities. Yeah. However, it is about a resource that is there. And all 16 are incredibly uh, experienced and well-rounded individuals like George here. Um, who have tremendous experience and really can give insight about what, what it is and what life is like in, in the Department of State. And, and I, I would add on top of that, Jody, if I might, uh, a lot of times I've encountered people who, who are aware of the Foreign Service Generalist uh, yep. position, but don't even understand that there are specialist positions as well that are fantastic jobs. So if you have a background in computer science, we have information management uh, uh Information technology managers, right? If you right. have a, a background in in uh, medical, if you're a you know physician's assistant or or a uh, 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 even a, a physician, right? We have medical jobs for specialists. Yes. We have security jobs for specialists. We have uh, an admin jobs. So there are a lot of opportunities beyond the traditional foreign service generalists that people yep. who have those backgrounds should really think about. That's a really great point. And we actually did one of our podcasts that we did recently was also talking about like I, I featured foreign service officers and foreign service specialists to to you know show the, the different faces of, if you will, the, the foreign service. And um, it's great. I think so many people don't know that. And I, I don't know, Jason, if you'd like to add a little bit to that in terms of if there's other ones that you you know want to want to highlight or just maybe talking how is the application process different so our listeners- well there's 20 there's no sure um there's 21 skill categories in the foreign service specialist side so you can see how broad it is you know and this is anything from facility management to uh overseas you know with our overseas building operations construction engineers 
um, you know, office management specialists or financial management. You know, we, we have a broader range of skill categories that are there. The best place to find out always information is our career site, careers.state.gov. I always go back to that because that does have a yep. big plethora of information. We typically have vacancy announcements with these skill categories. However, there's a few of them that we have an ongoing open vacancy announcement. And this is for our IT specialists uh -huh. and office management specialists because we are looking specifically at really increasing our roles within those. These are ongoing ones where you actually take the uh, exam online. It's, it's virtual right now and you go through a process with that and then go into the oral exams um, after that. So it's a little bit different than what we hear always with the foreign service officer skills uh, with this, but our foreign service specialists are people that do come in from these skills that are specialists. They know about this, they have a background. I think a misconception about the foreign service is that when you join the foreign service, you're coming in as entry level. Entry level is a, is a myth in my opinion, because what most of the people that come into the foreign service in our foreign service officer cohorts and our foreign service specialist cohorts are typically mid-career at this point. They're much older than what right. we've seen before in the past. They're in their 30s. Um, that doesn't, you know, that's not meaning that if you're younger than that, you can't get a position. You can. All you need is a high school diploma to take the foreign service officer. Right. But we most of what we find coming into the foreign service are people that do have a lot of experiences behind them. Sure. You know, and what, what makes somebody competitive, you know, in the foreign service? You know, people come from like George and I were talking about, people come from various different backgrounds. You know, me as a roadie originally, you know, and an educator. I love that. You know, it's, 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 it's something that's different, you know, but you take those tools and those experiences that you have from your previous life. And how is it that you incorporate it over at the State Department? You know, I'm, I am the deputy director of the Office of Talent Acquisition. We're the ones that oversee recruitment, the foreign right. service exams, you know, the registers to be able to onboard people. If you told me this 15 years ago that you're going to be overseeing <laughs> an office that's doing the recruitment side of it and onboarding and registers, I'd be right. telling you, what is that? I don't even know. You learn because it's what are your experiences? My experiences were leading. My experiences were being able to make change, to be able to, you know, take yeah. those type and education was huge for me to be able to. Uh, be able to learn, you know, I have to create curriculum still, it seems like, and that's what it is. Uh, so yeah. I take all these experiences and it's, you know, our, our population over the state department is a cross section of our country. It's reflective yeah. of who we are. Uh, it's a cross section of society. People come from all over the world. Right. Um, you know, I'm first generation American, you know, and I, you know, my parents came from overseas. But we have people that are coming in from all over the world to join the State Department, and each one of them have their own experiences. My advice for anybody looking at going into the Foreign Service, for instance, don't get wrapped up in the exams. You know, I think there's this also this uh, mindset that, oh, I got to find out as much as I can about the oral exams and the Foreign right. Service officer test. No, start at square one. Get the, get the information. Go to the career site. Talk to the diplomats and residents. Yeah. Talk to people that might have, know, have knowledge about what the Foreign Service is or even the civil service or the Department of State, yeah. read things, get that a type of experience because that's only going to help you that much more as you're going through a process. Yeah, no, that's, those are, those are really great recommendations. And, and I, I want to maybe back up just a moment because you were mentioning about foreign, you know, the, the um, FSS, the foreign service specialist versus the foreign service officers. So, so, is it true then that the foreign service specialists do still take the foreign the, the test or is it a different test or 
for some reason, I thought that Foreign Service officers take the general test and then the oral and the written, whatever, and and that Foreign Service specialists didn't do that. But how? Correct me. Please. So let me explain the difference between Foreign Service officer examinations and Foreign Service specialists. Great. The Foreign Service officer examination, which is the five cones uh, management oh. officer, public diplomacy uh, management and economic. Uh, they take the Foreign Service Officer Test. That is the written exam, which is proctored uh, mm -hmm. all over the world um, at testing centers. Once that happens, that's when it goes to the oral exam. You have to go through the qualifications right. evaluations panel and then ultimately the oral exam to where you do come and you uh, do it in a group presentation and whatnot. Yeah. And that's an all-day exam. Foreign Service Specialist, it's a vacancy announcement is where it starts, where you apply online for a position based on your resume and whatnot, uh -huh. where it gets actually vetted out and taken a look at. Um, there is an oral exam as well, just like, but there's no, there's not the written exam. Gotcha. Like for the Foreign Service That's the difference. Test. So I don't want you to get confused with that, but there is yeah. an oral examination that is for our Foreign Service Specialists as well. And how, how does the oral um, examination compare to that of the foreign service officer one? I mean, is it like grouped type of activity things or is it more like an interview where you're sharing your information to, to the extent you can answer that, obviously? Yeah, it's very, it's very similar, the aspects, but it's specialized for the specific mm -hmm. skill category with it to find out what skills that you have for that type of exam. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and Jody, I mean, I think this really highlights the value of contacting diplomat residents if you're, right. if you're interested in this, because what Jason described is true of the vast majority of the specialists. But if you yep. heard him earlier, he did say we have two of the specialist categories do have a gateway test, the office management specialist and the information management specialist. And that's a different gateway test than the one you take as a foreign service generalist. But it's still a written test. Yeah. It still is a written test. So, so it's there's a hybrid of different ways depending on where you're trying to get as to what the path that you need to take to get there. Gotcha. Oh, that makes. But even so that much that is a different written written test. Just to not confuse things. It's not it's not the same written yep. test as the Foreign right. Service right. Officer test. Right. Thank you. You know, thank you for clarifying somewhat of a confusing area. Right. It's you know, there's the different tracks and, and different requirements and. You know, you, you mentioned that many of the foreign uh, service officers or certainly the foreign service specialists who come in might be even, you know, they might be older, out of out of you know school for some time. Um, I do know that there's some age limits, and I guess I'm curious, what are the age limits for FSO, the foreign service officer, versus the foreign service specialist? Either so, of you can cover this. Yeah, so it's it's basically the same and that is to say, you, you need to be able to earn a pension. Okay. And to vest a pension, you need to work five years. Gotcha. And so uh, in the foreign service, which is different than the civil service, yep. uh, you have a mandatory retirement at 65. Mm -hmm. So in order to get the five years in, you have to start before you turn 60. Okay. All right. So for the foreign service specialist or the, or the generalist, unless you have... A veteran's preference, all right? So that there's the yeah, little yeah. asterisk for veterans. But normally you have to join before your 60th birthday. And the challenge is it takes a while to get through the process. Right. And particularly it takes a while to get the security clearance. So I can't yes. guarantee somebody, okay, 
if you're 49 and a half now or 59 and a half now, yeah, right, you right. make it by the time you're 60, you probably won't. Yeah. Right. So, so you've got to figure as you get to your late fifties, your, your window is closing pretty much. Yeah. Um, the one exception is, and I just want to mention this because it's a fantastic job mm-hmm. is for the security specialist, the diplomatic, diplomatic security. security special agent, right? Yes. The age I think is 36. Uh, yes. I believe you're right. We did. Yeah. We did a podcast on that specifically and talked yeah. about and so that, that's yeah. earlier because uh, of the physical requirements right. of the job, right? But I will say one thing about that as, as a specialist uh, career track is unlike so many of the others where you have to bring your knowledge of that specialty with you, right? So if you're, if you're a, a foreign service uh, psychiatrist, we're not going to send you to medical school. You have to have been to medical school. Yeah, you have to right. have a psychiatry <laughs> specialty before you apply. But for the diplomatic security special agent, we will train you to do that job. And so we get a lot of people who are, who are former military or former law yeah. enforcement, but we get teachers and social workers as well, because yeah. we will train you to be a, a diplomatic security special agent. But the age limit is, is younger, right. so you need to be aware of it. And actually, applying one, of people, one of the people that we featured on this uh, podcast that focused on the diplomatic security area was I think her name was Rachel, I forget. And, and they were saying how, although many people assume that diplomatic security is all military and and ex you know and veterans, it's it's not. You know, like, or, I'm sorry, military and and um, and uh, police officers, law yeah. right? Law enforcement, exactly. It's not, and they're actively recruiting non those areas to have more of that diversity. And obviously RPCVs make a great choice because of the flexibility that, you know, the, the cross-cultural skills, all of those kinds of skills. So, and Jason, I think you were going to say something as well. I was just going to say, and I, I want to just clarify with that, the retirement age for security specialists is not 36. Uh, retirement age is, uh, is 57, as if, I, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, so it's just to come into the service. Coming in, right. You right. do still have a plenty of a career left uh, if you right. come in at 36 years old in the security specialist. So, and That's the other side of that is civil service. There is no retirement age, so you can be here oh. as long as you want. Yeah, great. That's Jason that. tells me he's aiming to hang on till 90. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> That's that is that is awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the other pathway that we we were chatting about very briefly in the beginning. You know the fellow the consular consular fellows program. I think it is the CFP. Jason, can you give us a, a little bit of an information on what that is and and how it uh, how it works? So this is a program that just started in 2012. Um, where it was designed where we did some forecasting modeling, uh, seeing what's happening with our service over post. All foreign service officers must serve one tour in a consular position. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. That means that they're serving overseas, usually in a consular line, uh, doing visas to the, to the public or yep. whatever country that they may be in. We were noticing that we were going to be having a severe deficit um, because positions were increasing and uh, we didn't have enough foreign service officers to fill those roles. So we came up with a new program. What it is, is called the Consular Fellows Program. This is a five-year limited term appointment, which means it's not a career position, but it is a limited appointment to where individuals serve in one of these consular positions. So it allows an individual to go through basically the foreign service process. It's really very, very similar to the foreign service officer process. And if they get selected for the program and go 
overseas, they are serving in a consular position, gaining the experience that an entry-level officer, which is what we call our officers coming in, our entry-level officers gain in their first tour, and it can serve for up to five years. And it doesn't have to be at one post. It's usually in two posts, at least, that they will be serving in two different posts. It's all the same benefits and opportunities as a foreign service officer, serving overseas, being able to have your uh, housing paid for, being able to travel, whatever it may be, all the diplomatic uh, advantages that come with that. But it is for a five-year period. After five years, that time is over. Now, the benefit of this program if for people that want to join is that they get experience firsthand as what it is like to be in the foreign service and gain that valuable experience with that too. Not only that, if people are, if the individual is looking at actually joining in the foreign service and going through the exam, that kind of gives them a little bit of a leg up because you have that firsthand experience and be able to test with that. I do want to say with, with the Consul Fellow Program, we're typically looking at uh, language capabilities with this. Uh, it's in Spanish, uh, Mandarin Chinese, uh, Portuguese and uh, Arabic. Arabic. Thank you. Thank you, George. Also, <laughs> my head. We were recruiting for Russian as well. Right now, that's on hold a little bit, but that may come back again as well. And we're also always sure. looking at if we need to expand to other languages too. So it is quite a vast uh, opportunity. I've seen many Peace Corps volunteers go into this program. Yeah. Uh, we've had since the inception in 2012, it was on hold in 2020, and now it's, we're opening it again, where we're bringing in uh, CFPs this year. Uh, we've had, I think, in the neighborhood of 500 or 600 uh, council fellows that have come through our doors uh, since the inception in 2012. And wow. it actually became one of the largest recruiting efforts for this Department of State for the Foreign Service. And many of these do actually join into the Foreign Service going through the normal process. It is not a backdoor into the Foreign Service. Somebody still has to go through the normal testing procedures. But like I said, that firsthand experience really gives that leg up. I would add just go ahead. So a couple of things. One is uh, for some of the older prospects that I've met with, who I have to say, I'm so sorry, you, you're you're going to not be able to meet the age requirements for the Foreign Service because this is a non-career appointment. That age limit does not apply. So you can be a consular fellow. Uh, in the Consular Fellows Program as an older person uh, mm. without having that limitation, uh, you know, if you get through the process. I know an individual who is 80 years old who just got on board, who's coming on board. Fantastic. Board, so that wow, kind of shows you that, that is how that great. Is. Yeah. That and, is awesome. And the other thing I would add, uh, just to, to clarify, the, the work in the consular section basically has three dimensions. So, mm -hmm. so Jason mentioned one, which in many cases is the, the largest one, which is the issuance of uh, non-immigrant visas, people going to the United States on business or to visit Disneyland or maybe to have a medical appointment, but are planning to go back to their country of origin, non-immigrant. The second one are immigrant visas. And those are for people who are actually going to come and live and make their lives in the United States. And it's a, a very emotional thing to issue an immigrant visa to someone because they're they're changing their life right in front of you as, as you issue them the visa and, and going on to a new uh, a new path for themselves and for their family. And then the third, which is extremely important, is American citizen services. And that can range from very simple things like, you know, replacing a, an expired passport or a stolen passport to very emotional situations where someone may be in a terrible traffic accident 
uh, or is uh, in jail or, you know, has has some tragedy in their lives. And so uh, having the opportunity to do consular work uh, can be really very, very meaningful. And, uh, and, you know, I'm not a consular officer, but I have very fond memories of my time when I did that consular work. Wow. Thank you. That really clarifies that that role. And, you know, I think I had in my mind as well, kind of seeing that as, oh, this entry level and this, you know, automatically can gain as a younger, you know, person gaining that experience and such. But I love to hear, you know, uh, people of all ages. I love that you have an 80 year old that's coming in, Jason. That is fabulous. And thank you for clarifying a little more about what their role would be um, working in the consular, you know, area. Um, so I, I want to just I want to just make sure that I understood something that you said correctly, uh, Jason, backing up to the, the testing or the requirements for the CFP versus your standard foreign service officer. I think you said that there's still a test. Is it the same test, did you say, or a different test? It's a very similar examination process as the foreign okay. service officer exam. It's slightly tweaked, but it's a very similar process with this. But language capabilities is part of this as well. And there's right. a language component as well that we have to do the testing for too. Gotcha. Okay. Of course. Of course. Um, that, that makes, uh, that makes so much sense. We're going to go to a quick station break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Jobs with Jody podcast. Today, I'm talking with State Department officials about why RPCBs make the best foreign service officers. You have been sharing, you know, both of you about um, your own experiences and and the different types, really clarifying the the types of, of foreign service, you know, opportunities and, and how to get in in the field because you've been in some very interesting countries. And I guess I'd, I'd love to have you speak really, you know, very briefly on, you know, what what has been maybe your favorite part of of being in a, uh, you know, being a foreign service officer and what's been the most challenging part. So big question there for you. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, Jody, one of the things that I do for the people in my my region in, in the mid-Atlantic, every month I send out a, a monthly message. And uh, for everyone who has signed up, uh, they will get from me uh, some listing of what's available for uh, foreign service specialists, for generalists, consular fellows, internships, fellowships. But at the end of it, I always include a little... Uh, anecdote from my life in the foreign service to give people a flavor for what it's like to be uh to be in the foreign service and to to live and work in the foreign service so i'll tell you the one i'm sending out literally this afternoon um i'm talking about i was a a consul general in calcutta india and uh, it's now called kolkata they've renamed it but it was still calcutta when i was there and that's a huge consular district so i had 280 million people in my district Oh my goodness. And so one of the things, oh yeah. So today I was talking a little bit about the diversity of geography and some of my experiences related to that diversity. So, for example, the third highest mountain in the world, Kanchenjunga, is there uh, in the border between Sikkim and Nepal. All right. The largest delta in the world is there bordering Bangladesh and West Bengal. Uh, which is the Sundarbans, where the Ganges and the Brahmaputra pour into the, the Bay of Bengal. Even the place in the world with the highest total rainfall, over 400 inches a year, is in that consular district in the in the state of Meghalaya, which I actually visited there. Uh, and yes, it was raining. 
And so one of the, I did a couple of things while I was there related to this geography. So one was I traveled from the capital of Sikkim, which is Gangkok, at 5,000 feet up to the border with China or Tibet at Natula. And that was at 14,000 feet. And I remember getting out of the car I had to walk uphill the last hundred yards and I was gasping for breath because I hadn't acclimatized to the altitude. And there I looked across the Indian officers that were manning the border post because there's a little hostility with the Chinese. Uh, Lent me the binoculars. I could see the Chinese on the other side and I could just see miles and miles of Himalayan mountains. So beautiful. And I was thinking like, you know, for many years, the Tibetan uh, nomads were trading across this border. And there wasn't a, a, you know, that difference between countries at that time. Of course, they still had to worry about cold and bandits. And so it wasn't, wasn't an easy life, but it was obviously very different. Um, and so, you know, I was the first U.S. diplomat who'd been there in, in decades. And so when I wrote it up, I was got a lot of interest in Washington about what's the situation there. And then the other example I mentioned was in the Sundarbans. I took a boat and the vivid memory I have there was seeing this big log that had, had you know, washed up against one of the shores. And as we approached, the log sprouted legs and crawled into the ocean, into the, you know, the bay, because it was a giant crocodile. It's the biggest crocodile I've ever seen in my whole life and that I ever expect to see. So it was very surprising. And you ask, well, why would a diplomat go to the Sundarbans? Well, part of that is, you know, you have to know the economy and the politics and the culture uh, of the country to which you're accredited. And so part of it was that. But the other part of it is this giant delta is, you know, it's, it's less than a meter, in many cases, less than a foot above sea level. Wow. And so all of those issues of sea level rise and climate change, yeah. that that giant crocodile, believe it or not, was actually a canary, canary in the coal mine for what is happening with global warming. And so it was very important for an environmental reason for me to make that visit. So that just gives you a couple of samples that I'm going to actually publish today of, of what it's wow. like to be a foreign service officer and what kind of things you might end up doing. What is the um, what is the address that they could uh, visit to get onto your list to be able to receive these exciting stories and and <laughs> vignettes? So so here's what I would suggest: you can also go onto careers.state.gov and okay. look up your your diplomat and residence. Now I should warn you: we have we have a certain amount of independence. So I'm I'm not sure every diplomat and residence provides that monthly message as I do. I think some do and some don't. Uh, but mine is the HTTPS tiny URL uh, and then the after that slash one four four Y O five X eight. Great, thank you so much. That that really helps and. That's that's wonderful because people can really can really hear a little more about, you know, from somebody who's been a foreign service officer and talking about some of the challenges or the, you know, the highlights and, and things like that. So wonderful. Jason, I, I want to go back to you here before we wrap up and and just ask if you, you know, as in your position as deputy director, right, of talent acquisition, what are maybe the the you know, the pieces of advice that you would want to leave your fellow return Peace Corps volunteers, the, the audience here, with in terms of if, if they're interested in pursuing foreign service in any way and civil service. I do want to talk very briefly about that as well. 
so what, what, what are some of the tips that you would recommend they do if they're interested in pursuing? How can they make themselves more competitive? Sure. Um, well, thank you for that question. I, you know, I think we need to go back to what we've been kind of repeating a little bit, you know, the career site, careers.state.gov, it has a plethora of information. It has uh, everything from information for their council fellows that we talked about, mm-hmm. FSOs, foreign service specialists. It has our diplomats and residents on there. It shows you what regions they are. Um, you know, and I spoke about it a little bit earlier, too, about, you know, if you're looking at joining the foreign service or state department, as a whole. It's about trying to give yourself all the tools necessary in order to be able to be as successful as you can be and to be able to apply and become competitive with that. It's a very competitive process, the foreign service uh, process. You know, there's we have thousands of people applying a year um, for a few hundred spots. Uh, so it is a very, very competitive process. But the experience that you have with Peace Corps, the experience that you get from being able to talk to people, and the experiences that you have on your own from your own life can make you competitive. Don't focus so much on the test. Don't focus so much on just a test. Get the information that you can. And remember, there's so many different opportunities within the Department of State. You know, when we're talking about foreign service, we're bringing in a few hundred at a time. Well, that's just on a foreign service officer side. We're also bringing in a few hundred specialists every year. We're also bringing in now a few hundred counselor fellows. And then the civil service is a huge opportunity. I yeah. think people always think that you have to have non-competitive eligibility in order to get into a civil service position. That's not true. Nope. There's different paths to be able to do this. You know, we are, you know, for those that are just still an undergrad, we're, uh, we have internship programs. We have fellowship programs that you can be able to do. You can apply based on your experience. You know, it, there's plenty of opportunities out there. I didn't receive my position through the comp- uh, non-competitive eligibility. I was through a competitive process yeah. through a special program that I applied for. You know, I'm very fortunate to be selected for that. So there are paths to be able to do to get into the department and get into government service for that yeah. matter. I know hundreds of Peace Corps volunteers or term Peace Corps volunteers at the Department of State alone. And then thinking about how that network is for all of government. There are plenty of ways to be able to do it. But for the Department of State, you have that experience. You have the experience as an RPCV. You have that direct experience. And that's why we really tap in and say, this is why uh, Return Peace Corps volunteers really make the best foreign service personnel and civil service personnel in the Department of State, in my opinion, uh, with that. I, you know, being an RPCV myself, I feel that we're pretty good uh, in the RPCV community. And it's a very close-knit group here as well. Thank you, Jason. I think those are really good points. And, you know, especially with, you know, NCE, it's not the only way in. And so, you know, you certainly, I'm another example of not using NCE and I've been in various government agencies. So USA Jobs is not impossible. You just need to know how to work it, how to show yourself the experience. And you could certainly come to me and, and chat about that and, and tap into our other resources that we, we do offer in the global reentry here at NPCA. Absolutely don't. That is that is absolutely uh, the key here. Thank you so much. And I want to actually, uh, George, I want to go to you to see if you have any parting words of advice, you know, that, that you want our listeners to hear on this topic. And then I also want you to be able to plug a really exciting information session that's coming up, a national event that is coming up on. Um, yeah, and, and you can you can plug that on, on what that is and when. I would be delighted to do that. So first of all, let me just uh, point out, uh, for those of you who are interested in this career, 
when you apply, uh, you if you are not successful the first time, you do have to wait a year before you try again. And why do I mention that? Well, in the most recent Foreign Service Officer class, the General's class, they polled the members of that class, and it turns out less than a quarter of the people in that class had gotten through the first time they tried, which means more than three quarters of the people who were in that class successfully made it through had failed the first time they tried. Great. And so I, I, I remind people of that. So if this is your dream, if this is your ambition, don't don't give up the first time if it doesn't work out for you. Uh, give it another try. Keep at it uh, and, and be persistent because uh, that persistence is itself a, a great quality. Great. Thank you so much, George, for, for sharing those words. And to Jason, both of you have been so enjoyable to have here and, and inspirational, really, for RPCBs who are interested in working at um, somehow maybe in the Foreign Service. And, and I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about civil service as well, because there's a lot of unique and, and great opportunities there as well. So this brings us to a close for today's podcast. Special thanks to our distinguished guests from State Department, George and Jason. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insight, your advice with us regarding FSO positions, uh, FSS, all the different, really the different types of, of positions there and how to best compete for them. Also, thanks to our listeners who will be able to, who can find this on one of the many distribution channels for podcasts. So whatever your source is, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you can find all of our, our episodes of Jobs with Jody on those. And uh, lastly, if you do have suggestions for a topic for a future podcast, please let us know. We are here to do these for you and obviously want to make sure that they're relevant. So you can always email careers at rpcb.org, subject line, podcast topic. Thanks so much and make it a great day. 